All right, so this morning, I'm going to start off by uh, showing you some of the most amazing and biggest tombs that the world has to offer. Okay. And I think maybe the best place to start is with uh, where we get the word mausoleum, which a mausoleum, you know, is, is a, uh, a building that is dedicated and holds a tomb to someone. Um, and the namesake of mausoleum is actually the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, which uh, you would think that is for someone named Halicarnassus, but it's not. It's actually in a city named Halicarnassus, and the king... Uh, Molossos was what this mausoleum is named after. So when you hear the word mausoleum, it actually goes back to this, the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. Now, it isn't standing anymore. Uh, I think it was destroyed uh, like in the like 600 or something years ago, at least maybe earlier than that, uh, due to earthquake damage and things. But it was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, and it was, it was pretty big. It was uh, 63 feet on the long side, then a little shorter, so it wasn't quite square, but it was, it was pretty close to square. And it stood at 140 feet tall, and it had 36 pillars that bounded it. Um, and like I said, this is the ancient tomb of Molossus, and it was world-renowned. People would travel just to come see this mausoleum. And it, it was impressive, but it's, it's not as big as they get. As far as like weight goes, probably the largest mausoleum or tomb in the world are the Great Pyramids in Giza, which I'm sure you guys have uh, heard of and are familiar with, at least by the name. And the largest period, uh, pyramid there uh, is to the king or pharaoh Khufu, and it stands at 480 feet tall. And it is the only standing, currently still standing, uh, ancient wonders of the world, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. So it is the last of those that we still have standing today. And they estimate it took somewhere between 20,000 and 100,000. I know that's a lot of range, but around 20,000 to 100,000 people over 20 years uh, to build this pyramid. And inside of it, it housed uh, priceless treasures and it, the remains of Pharaoh uh, and his wife were mummified and even servants uh, who served the Pharaoh, were killed and mummified so that in the afterlife, this is what the Egyptians believed, in the afterlife, they would have everything that they needed. So everything was built out of gold and their servants were mummified with them. That way, in the afterlife, they would come with them and could serve them. And the pyramid is 700 feet uh, square, 700 feet on both sides. And it is within eight inches of accuracy of each other. On the sides, which means that it is within 1% of 1% accuracy uh, over 700 feet, which is just um, an amazing feat of engineering. And the pyramid used to be, right now it uh, looks very rough and rocky, but it actually used to be covered in limestone, which is a bright white stone. And it is a little softer and easier to corrode, and it's also desirable. So over time, between earthquakes blocks being stolen to be used in other projects and just erosion, the limestone has worn away. But most people think, most people who study the pyramid think that uh, when it was covered in limestone, when it had its capstones on it, that it would have been visible from the moon. It would have reflected so much light, it would have been so bright and it's so big that you would have been able to see 
the Great Pyramid of Giza from the moon, which is just crazy. And now, it's, it's hard to kind of put these numbers into perspective, but the estimated weight of the pyramid is 5.9 million metric tons, which is 13 billion pounds, which is also 52 million roughly refrigerators, just to help put it in perspective. I don't even know what 10,000 refrigerators would look like, but it's 52 million of those. So a third major tomb, uh, now one of the seven wonders of the world, is the Taj Mahal, which I'm sure you guys have heard of and seen before. You may You may not know, but this is a mausoleum, a tomb, contributed, uh, well, it was built by King Shahad Jahan for his wife, Mumtaz Mahal, which is where the name Taj Mahal comes from. And she died, by the way, giving birth to their, her 14th child, <laughs> which is just, it's, uh, I mean, the graves aren't even close yet. So, so I'm sure maybe Katie, after 14, you'd be like, okay, I'm done too, so... Uh, historically, in India, their relationship uh, between the king and his wife was extremely special. And he really honored her and loved her so much. Obviously, when she died, he built this, what is equivalent to $827 million complex for her. Um, and it's over 70,000 metric tons of marble um, have been used to build it. But nothing we've talked about so far comes close to the big daddy of tombs. Okay, this is, this is, this is the big one. All right, this is the tomb of Shen Shi Huang. Um, Shen Shi Huang was the first emperor to unify China. And his tomb lies under what is a, a grave mound. It's like a hill. And the tomb itself, just the tomb itself, is 1,000 feet by 1,000 feet wide. All right? And it's not the biggest of tombs as far as, like, actual size goes, the tomb itself, but the complex, the mausoleum complex, is 21 square miles, which is seven times larger than Rockford proper. It's about half the size of Grand Rapids is his mausoleum complex. And the tomb itself is actually kind of shrouded in mystery, um, but there have, because the Chinese government has said they're not allowed to open the, the tomb, the tomb itself, but they've done excavation around it. They did do 3D scans of the tomb, and they found through these 3D scans that it's almost like an exact replica, a miniature version of the palace, and it itself is three stories tall. But no one really knows the full scope of what is there. Uh, interestingly, there are these legends that uh, this tomb is guarded by lakes of mercury and booby-trapped crossbows. Like, there's like a moat of liquid mercury surrounding it so that no one can get to it. And there are extremely high elevated levels of mercury in the soil surrounding this area. So that kind of leads the credence to this like history, this lore, this myth. Of course, thousands of years ago when this happened. But even crazier than just the tomb itself was what is uncovered at the complex, which is what you're looking at here. Uh, this is known as the Terracotta Army. So there are 8,000 soldiers, 130 chariots, 520 horses, um, and 150 cavalrymen, which they're all statues, but each one, here's the crazy part, each one is individual. 
It's not like they just had a mold and they pumped out 8,000 of these, but each one has their own face and their own proportions and size, almost like they were cast after real people. It's just an incredible amount of detail. And it's faded now, but each one used to be vibrantly painted. It's just crazy uh, what this, the scope of this is. And like these leather straps, like on this horse over here, the leather straps and these reins, they're not actually leather, they're bronze. But they just, it's just the amazing amount of work that went into creating this, this complex. Um, not only that, they found that in this complex, there are subterranean stables where they found skeletons of horses. There are seven other burial sites where top leaders and things like that were buried uh, eventually in here. And they even found uh, remnants of an exotic zoo for animals that they kept down here and just a ton of other artifacts. It's, the scope is really incredible. But the craziest thing is, is that between all of these tombs that we've looked at today, all the wealth and the effort that went into building them, the people who they were meant, that was meant to have all this stuff, took none of it with them. Right? All of this stuff was just buried under the ground. It's useless. It's actually useless to these people, according to God's wisdom, anyway. So I'm going to show you that in a minute, but I want to remind you that in this series, we're going over the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we're doing is we're taking a look at what it means to live well by realizing the fact that we're all going to die. I know, such a cheery concept, but we will. We will all die someday. And the point of Ecclesiastes is to, make sure, is to make sure we don't waste that life. Today we're going to be going over Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. So if you'd like, go ahead and turn there with me. At the start of chapter 5, um, not quite at the start, we're going to actually start partway through, it really deflates everything that uh, these great people would have had in their burial grounds. It just kind of evaporates the meaning of it and the point of it all. And in this passage we're, we're about to read as well, there's a stark rebuke about pursuing money and the things in this life. There's, it's not that we don't need money, it's not that we don't need things to survive, but it's just going to talk about hoarding them and collecting them. It will all become clear. So we're going to start in verse 10 and we're going to read through 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage of their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owners to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. 
This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness and with great vexation, sickness, and anger. So here we see the reality of what these tombs actually are, right? They're nothing. All the wealth, the things that these people collected, literally are just dirt. They were hidden under dirt. Maybe some of them are impressive, the artistry and the engineering and things like that, but they don't actually have any value to the people who died. And in in fact, some of these greatest tombs that we've looked at were just forgotten. The Terracotta Army, this amazing uh, amassment of wealth and and power, was found by accident when someone was digging a hole. People didn't even know it was there. So when the end comes, Ecclesiastes tells us that stuff isn't going to matter to God. But rather how we lived our lives and if we honored him. Now here's the, here's the cool part. And if that's true, it means that it is very possible that almost all of us here today will be better off in the long run than the so-called greatest and most successful people in history. And that is the beauty of truth. It sets us free. It means that we can have nothing in this age. We can lose absolutely everything. But we can still achieve the greatest thing in the age to come. We can still have eternal life even if we have nothing in this age. Look again at verses 10 and 11. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. It's nothing. That's what that word vanity means. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? There will never be enough to satisfy us. Solomon says that when good things increase, when good things are abundant, guess what? People just seem to pop up and consume all the extra increase. We're like locusts, all right? doesn't matter how good or bad the crop is, there's going to be just enough locusts there to cause a problem. So the one who tries to collect, the one who tries to hoard, is going to be forced to watch his riches be consumed and disappear. And maybe if it doesn't happen in this age, or in this life, uh, whoever he leaves it to, whatever happens to his wealth later, could be lost. A fool could get it and spend it all. A bad investment could take it away. It could be stolen. It's simply not permanent enough to be reliable. That is what Solomon is saying, that wealth is not permanent enough to be reliable. So now I want to go back to the beginning of chapter 5, because it also holds some wisdom for us. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in your word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. 
When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, or he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. All right, so what is Solomon talking about here? He's talking about prayer. And I think it's a harsh critique of what or how many of us pray. I know for myself, I oftentimes, when I go into prayer, just bring a list of things that I want or need or things that are going on, as if God maybe doesn't know already. Right? He created us. He knows what we need. And there is some faithfulness in bringing those things to God. It is not bad to ask God for things. But if you were to sit down with the wisest and most powerful being in the universe, don't you think it's a little more appropriate to listen more than you talk? Right? And I know sometimes we have a hard time hearing the voice of God and discerning what that is. But I think we need to practice it. We need to practice listening. And that may come through other people's words to us, through Scripture. Maybe God reminds us of something he's already said in his book. Or maybe he does speak to us. He nudges us and moves us. So next time you go before God to pray in prayer, make sure you listen at least just as much as you talk. Maybe God isn't answering our prayer because we're not listening. Maybe we don't see the wisdom we've asked for because we aren't listening. Honestly, I, I realized as I was reading these verses today that I give most people more courtesy in our conversations than I do with God. I ask them something, and then I let them reply, right? I let them respond. I let them elaborate. We should do that with God as well. And another quick point I want to touch on is that he says, don't make a promise to God unless you intend on keeping it. Keeping it. And there are plenty of examples that I could bring up from Scripture of people who have broken promises to God, didn't fall through on what they said, and it did not end up well for them. And Jesus even tells us, to let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let our words be consistent with our actions, especially when it comes to God. And I kind of want to leave chapter 5 there. We didn't cover everything that it has, but we do have chapter 6 to look at as well. So go ahead and look at chapter 6 with me. We're going to look at the first three verses. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, However many they may be, his soul is not satisfied with good, with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better is the one who wasn't born than he. So even if someone is successful and wealthy, they sometimes don't even get to enjoy the wealth that they have. We saw that in last chapter, and we've actually seen that almost the entirety of this book, that Things can be taken from us, right? They're not secure. And I think here Solomon has the idea of taxes and tributes in mind, right? Raise your hand if you love your taxes. 
Okay, I'm glad we're all in agreement there, right? You work so hard, and then some person writes you a letter and says, okay, now you owe me this much, right? It just drives you nuts. And sometimes you think, there's no way I owe that much money. And uh, during many times in Israel's history, they were oppressed by other countries. And guess what? They had to take their hard-earned wealth, the fruit of their labor, and just give it to another country. Because of life circumstances, we are usually out of control from what is taken from us, to some extent. We are unable to stop things being taken from us. And I think that that is kind of the more obvious ways through taxes and tributes and things like that. We say, okay, or, and people stealing. Okay, those things have been taken from us. But I think what is even more subtle is that our culture says we need things, right? Our modern age says we need this, we need that, we need to look such a way, we need to drive this kind of car, have this kind of phone. And so we spend everything we have on stuff we don't actually need. And guess what? It's the same thing. Kind of subliminally, out of our control, we're spending. Things are being taken from us without really knowing why. There are so many ways that we can be robbed in life. Some of them very obvious, others are more subtle. And that's what Solomon calls a severe affliction. So, sometimes to be simple, to be content, I would say always, not even sometimes, to be simple and to be content is better to be wealthy and successful. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. And it kind of continues this thought. All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. How many of you guys ate yesterday? How many of you were hungry this morning? Exactly. That's exactly what Solomon is saying, right? Continue on. For what advantage does a wise man have over the fool? What advantage does a poor man have over knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after wind. Our appetite, or as Solomon says, what the eye sees is better than what we actually get from the stuff that we have. Right? We, we look at something, and I'm sure you guys have had this experience. You look at something you want to buy. You look at something you want to eat. Maybe you look at a person that you want to have a relationship with. And once you get that thing, you eat that food, you date that person, you realize that, oh, my life still isn't complete. Right? I'm still not happy. I'm still dissatisfied. There are still these problems in my life. Maybe these things have even made your life more difficult, right? Now, I've told you this before. If you, you may know that I want a Ford Maverick, right? A Ford Maverick, not like the old one that's like from a long time ago. This new Ford Maverick that just came out. It's this little unibody pickup truck, the hybrid engine, and get over 40 miles a gallon, fit a 4x8 sheet of plywood in the back. It's like a dream of mine, right, to have a Ford Maverick. But in reality, I know, in the heart of my hearts, I know that it would not change my life at the end of the day, right? And that's why I let it go. I let the dream go. 
If I got a Ford Maverick, I would probably get grumpy sometimes still, right? I would still be upset. And with the Ford Maverick specifically, I'd probably get upset at the car payment I had to make and the increased insurance I'd have to pay on it compared to my 2005 Mercury Grand Marquis GS with 178,000 miles and a dent on the side, okay? It's a great car, though. Me and Hank, we got it. But... Who knows? It's a brand new car. It could end up being a terrible model. It could fall apart. It could have all kinds of problems. And maybe in the end, even if I did get a Ford Maverick, I would end up resenting it. Right? Now, I've learned this lesson before in my life. I remember I really wanted a Sony PSP, which is like a handheld gaming system. And I thought if I just got that, it would be great and I would never need entertainment again in my life. And like three months later, I was trying to sell it. All right? I almost never played it. I learned this lesson with my first cell phone, my ex-girlfriend from high school, my 1980 Plymouth Ferrari that I had dreams of driving around and fixing up, but it was a hunk of junk and had a bad bearing, okay, in the engine and was useless. I remember I was sitting on the bus on the way home from refuel, which is like a mid-winter youth camp. I remember I was just sitting there staring out the window, bored out of my mind on the way back. I was like, man, if I just had a cell phone, I could be texting my friends and calling and playing games right now. I would be like in paradise. Everything would be perfect. And now I look at my phone and sometimes it drives me nuts, right? I get spam calls. It is an entry point into my life for anybody who has money to send me advertisements, right? It's also a source of responsibilities. My texts, my phone calls, my emails, they're all right there with me all the time. It is kind of a, a burden, right? This thing that's designed to make my life better really ends up making me waste more of my time than it saves me. That is exactly what Ecclesiastes is telling us. The problem is that without this wisdom, without God speaking into our lives through Ecclesiastes, we may not know that what we are consuming actually isn't satisfying us. Because we can be tricked into thinking, oh yeah, yeah, I'm happy, this is good. But it's fleeting. That's what he says, that it's vanity. It's nothingness. It's, it's, it's like trying to grasp smoke. Look at verse 12. Kind of to finish us up here with this cheery note. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And this is the first takeaway that we just need to keep repeating through this book, and we've, we've already seen it, but we need to make the point again that, that life is short. Right? I just said this morning, I've almost been here for four years already, and it seems like that. Our lives are lived like a shadow. Right? A shadow, what is a shadow? It's, it's temporary. It's a void of something that's actually there. And what we're doing right now is so temporary and short 
that we shouldn't be planning what we're doing around this, but what is to come. Right? The Bible talks about an age that is to come, where if you believe in Jesus, you will have eternal life. Compared to eternity, this age is just a blip. So let's live now. Let's not waste now. Let's live now for what is coming, not currently what is going on. These two chapters also teach us that we need to respect God's position. Right? Where is God? He is in heaven. He's able to see all things. And where are we? We are here on earth. Hardly even able to know what we will eat for lunch this week. Okay? We are just totally on a different league and playing ground or uh, and playing field than, than God. The comparison isn't even there. And so that changes when we see that. That changes a lot about how we approach prayer. As Solomon pointed out, that we should be spending more time listening than talking when we come to God. But if we keep this perspective, it also changes our general view of God. How we perceive his authority and his wisdom and what he says over what we think. So given this principle that God is in heaven and we are here, should not we rely on his authority and his wisdom more than our own? I think that's just kind of an extrapolation of what Solomon is saying. And lastly, don't hold on to what you can't take. We came into this world, as Solomon says, naked and with nothing. And that is exactly how we are going to leave. In other words, you're leaving with nothing. Now, I don't care if we're talking about Shen Shi Wang or Khufu or Molossus or anyone else. No one has an advantage over anyone else in death. Everyone is on an equal playing field in death. The only thing that we can hold on to in death is what God has secured. When we die, when we die God remains. His power is able to bring us back to life. So as far as I can see it, none of us will have a fancier tomb than the Great Pyramid of Giza, I promise. But we can be better poised to enter eternity through belief in God and His Son, Jesus. More prepared for what is to come than Shi Xing Wang or Khufu or any other leader of this world. Now, I've, I hope you found this message at least a little bit encouraging, but also sobering at the same time. That's kind of the whole point of Ecclesiastes, to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. To say, okay, here's the reality of things, but I need to keep them in check. So I hope you've been pushing this series so far, and I hope that it pushes you to adjust your priorities. And I hope you're feeling yourself called to maybe change something in your life. Maybe there's something that is sucking your time, pulling away from what God wants you to be doing, and you just need to let go of it. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for this opportunity to study your wisdom. And I pray that you enlighten our minds. Allow us to truly hear what you have to say. 
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.